Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about mining the genome. Because if the last 40 years of life sciences has taught us anything, it's that the information we take from our DNA is always more valuable than we think it's going to be. And why wouldn't it be? I mean, innovation and efficiency and profit and money in general are all just proxies for some greater and deeper human need. Most innovation is a more efficient means to the same ends. But DNA? Well, that's different. That is who we are. It literally defines us. So naturally, it's something we all care about deeply, whether we know it or not. Today, I'd like you to meet Tomohiro Takanao, CEO and founder of Awakens. And Awakens is trying to open up the genome and to make it more accessible and understandable to you and me. How exactly they plan on making money doing that? Well, Tomo will explain in just a moment. It's a combination of a B2B and B2C DNA marketplace that some listeners will find exciting and some will find infuriating. But you know, Tomo tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. We're sitting here with Tomo Takanao of Awakens, a genomic startup here in Tokyo. So thanks for sitting down with us. Yeah, I'm really, it's my uh, pleasure to be here today. Okay. Let's, let's do a quick overview of what Awakens is. So you, you developed the Genome Link software, and, yes. and you say you have a vision of everyone being able to access their own DNA data. Why would we want to do that? Uh, we create a service called Genome Link, which is the kind of API solution for companies to develop their own DNA personalized products. So we see that uh, in near future, in five or ten years, every single people will have access to their own DNA data. Then uh, make full use of that data for like uh, their choosing you know, fitness, nutrition, food, medicine. Does Awakens do the DNA testing as well, or do you just link to work that's been done by like Ancestors or 23andMe? Right, so what, at this point, we are fo simply focusing on existing genetic testing users. So we don't do the sequencing operation, because in the United States, there is already 10 million uh, genetic testing users. Then uniqueness of US market is actually these user can download their raw data then these users are actually looking for the opportunity to make full use of the data by accessing to other products. Tell me about your customers. Who, who are your customers in this model? Is it the, the software companies who are making new software that can take advantage of this genetic information? Or is it consumers who want to explore their own genome? Sure, so basically we are trying to connect both users and the companies. So right now, every day, 100 people uploading their DNA data through our platform. So we cover like 100 genetic traits information. Some of them are not covered by 23andMe or other genetic testing products. 
So people are looking for the opportunity to know more, right? What sort of traits are people looking for? Famous one is something like a fitness or like a personality or sometimes like some intelligence type traits. We are simply enabling users to connect their own DNA data with the data science to know more about their identity. Okay. All right, before we dive deep into the DNA and the genetic science, uh, I want to back up a bit and talk a bit about you. Mm -hmm. So before you founded Awakens, you used to run a GTAC, which was M3's division for healthcare and genetic right. testing, right? Yeah. First of all, I really loved you know, M3, and then actually M3 is, you know, was the kind of engineering investor of uh, Awakens too. Oh, excellent. So we have really strong relationship with him I worked for too. So Awaken initially started as like a weekend project. We you know, kind of wanted to do something you know, we really cannot do in you know, the previous company, right. but we see this is going to be the future of genomics. So we wanted to do three things. So one is the, we wanted to do something with whole genome. Existing genetic testing products lead on small, only a small portion of DNA data which is like a 0.03% for DNA data. And then obviously 100% of DNA data gives more information, more higher, higher accuracy. Does it though? Because my understanding mm. is that a lot of our genome, we don't really know what it does. Sure. So I mean, being able to read 100% of the genome doesn't mean you can understand it, right? Yes, so maybe 100% uh, you know, DNA data does not necessarily to have, that's something we would know for the future. But what's really happening right now is that, you know, people started, you know, targeting small portion of these, you know, DNA data called SNPs. You know, we started products like a 20-centimeter ancestry DNA. You know, right now, you know, research for the last three or five years is, academic research is now focusing on more like comprehensive data, like a whole genome or a whole exome, which is like a three to five percent of DNA data. Or even like a SNPs, you know, they see the different location, right? At the end, uh, research kind of revealing that, you know, we have more information than what we are using genetic testing products. So right now, like what percent of our genome do we have a good understanding of what it does? It's really still early to judge, I would say. Was it like 1% or 5%? Or? Uh, we have like a 3% of, you know, DNA data has functional meaning. Then people say that you know, in 97 or 98% is like a, you know, junk DNA or something, right? It's kind of an ocean of DNA, right? Sure. I, I mean, it, we can't really say it's junk DNA, it's just we don't know what it does yet. Exactly. So right, every week we're having new research showing that you know, this data could be related to this kind of phenomena, which we call like a phenotype. So there's so many research ongoing, and there's so many progress of you know, how we statistically analyze this DNA data by using AI, you know, you know new method, right? Sure. We have like in our inner universe in DNA, right? The DNA is a kind of the galaxy, and people try to understand what we can know from those you know, bunch of letters, and it's, it's still ongoing. So, so basically, what Awakens is doing is you're providing a, a very user-friendly, programmer-friendly API. Yep. And on the back end, you're collecting all the latest research from around the world of people looking into different parts of the genome and what they might be doing. Yep. And then presenting that to the users. Yep. One of the key value of our API is that annotation database. 
Annotation means how we interpret each DNA data. So for users, people upload their own existing twin decision ancestry DNA data. The original data is only 0.03%, right? But based on our annotation database, other research actually found that there are some letters that could be related to you know, some body traits, which is not covered by the data that 27 DNA is looking at, right? But at the same time, we provide this database as an like API solution to the company so that the company can develop their own products. That makes sense. Getting back to when you were leaving M3, so you mentioned that they're one of the investors in your company, so obviously you left on very good terms. That's hard to do in Japan. How did you leave on such good terms and, and get them excited enough to not only continue <laughs> speaking to you, but to put money in your company? Oh, no, it's, it's, but it's more like just a personal relationship. It really doesn't you know, have any competition on what they are doing, right? Yeah, but wasn't there some pressure? Didn't people come and say, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that inside the company and we'll give you support and staffing? I think the, the Awaken was a really exceptional case for the company to you know, put the money in that early stage. You know, they are more likely trust me and then supporting me, right? So sort of the personal relationship yeah, built yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Well, and it's, it's important for your next phase. You've put out an API, but it's much, much easier to make an API than to get other programmers programming against that API. Mm. So what kind of development partners do you have? What kind of companies want to make software based on Genome Link? The few companies so we are starting the conversation to get the use case in the United States is food delivery or fitness app company. But in the United States, there's already a startup or a company creating DNA personalized food delivery business. Because you know, food delivery is, you know, the company wants to have, you know, the user have like a loyalty to your products. Food delivery is kind of, I would say, harder to differentiate. So if your company can develop personalized experience. So they're saying based on your unique genetic type, we'll come up with the best diet for you. And that's, something, that's something happening in the United States. Um, one company called Habit, they raised like a 32 million for the Series A. Um, so I would say the industry is still really in the early phase and more experimental. It's kind of a huge change of the business, right? I, I can see that being a huge potential business, but there's a lot of confusion in this market yeah. about what DNA means and, and how much we really understand DNA. Yeah. And like, uh, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, uh, the U.S. government told 23andMe to... Sorry, yeah, almost like a three or four years ago already. Yeah. Yeah. So they told them they had to stop claiming yeah. that it would tell probability for getting cancer or, or different kind of medical related items. So how accurate is this DNA testing? How accurate is this information coming back? You know, this is the, you know, question many users and industry people have, right? The quick answer is that it's really case by case. Well, I, I guess. I mean, it's science. But there, there's, you can't deny there's science behind it. And, and there are certain parts of the genome we understand very well. But I guess from a business model point of view, is this medicine or is this more like astrology? Yeah, so medicine is getting really, the effectiveness of medicine is getting approved for certain purpose. For example, 
you know, FDA is choosing particular gene marker as a kind of decisive marker of choosing the cancer therapeutic, right? Choosing a cancer drug, cancer drug, and if you have a particular mutation on your gene, maybe, you know, some drug could be much effective or some is not. That's part of the, you know, application that we can have. Well, you know, on one hand, from the point of view of Awakens, it doesn't matter because you're marketing to whoever is building apps. Mm -hmm. So if they're marketing it as a medical information, you're not responsible for that. If they're marketing it as entertainment, that's fine too. But on the medical side, either in the United States or in Japan, what do doctors think of this kind of uh, this, this personal DNA sequencing? Do they use it at all in diagnostics? So in diagnostics, you, you know, again, those cancer therapy or, you know, pharmacogenomics, which is you know, how you choose a drug. So, so do you think we'll get to a point where you go in for your annual physical or you go to see the doctor and the doctor says, oh, do you, you know, let me see your personal DNA sequence? Yeah. I'm pretty much sure how that future is going to happen in five or ten years for everybody. Medical is for sure, but, you know, what about other fields like fitness, nutrition, food? Some research indicates that, you know, the personalization based on those data is actually changing users' behavior, but I'm still under a discussion how much this is scientifically validated or not. It sounds like there's a really broad range. It is, it is. From, from you know, all the way from genuine, medically, clinically proven yeah. information to pure entertainment and guessing. Yeah, exactly. That's why we are having both like a B2C and a B2B interface. Because you know, for the B2B side, we want to provide simple API solution enabling your company to develop any of the DNA personalized integration just by coding. But at the same time, for the B2C, we need a proper education process. So users have to know. So what we are trying to do for the B2C side is more like trying to be educator of genomics for the users. You mentioned that right now, the product is free for consumers. Mm -hmm you'll probably change that at some point in the future. We're already making, making money from users. So people are willing to pay to, to see their own genetic info. But right now it's a kind of freemium model. Mm -hmm. So people can upload DNA data to our platform and we provide like our half genetic traits information for free, but for the half we you know, ask users to pay like a 39 US dollars. What is your churn like? Because I would imagine that once people sort of see their, their genetic profile and, and run through it, now I don't need the service anymore. At this point, that's happening exactly. Uh, but at the same time, we are developing a number of the, our own new applications so that the user can see the market continuous value. What type of applications are you developing? We have not released yet, so it's more like a general idea is more like an informative application. Uh, so we want to have more like educational content so we can provide that kind of apps. Another idea is like a kind of social network of DNA. So find people with similar profiles as yourself? Or that's something it's available in the market already. So another idea could be like, so Tim and Tomo. So what kind of personality similarity we have or what, you know, maybe which, you know, has like a higher gambling tendency or something like that. There is. <laughs> of course there is. 
<laughs> but I don't know if people really want to find a partner based on DNA. But what we are trying to create more like a casual you know, experience for users to talk about their DNA identity. Do you see yourself eventually competing with Ancestry or 23andMe? Yeah, I mean, could it be competing or could it be collaborating, right? Because as a startup, we are simply focusing on platform of you know, data secondary usage, right? Even the fact that you're updating the database with new research would help you retain customers. Because you could say, you know, new research out of Oxford has shown, you know, new markers associated with intelligence. You should come back and check your results again. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what we do. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like, once we found the, those findings, we can simply, you know, provide that information to our existing users too, right? Most of the other genetic startups, part of their long-term business model is selling access to the data to pharmaceutical companies. Now, earlier you mentioned that you guys had decided against doing that. Why? Um, why? Because business perspective, we join the market rate. We don't want to compete for that value, right? What if we could create a business model which is not relying on selling this data model? Uh, we can make kind of disruptive innovation in the business model, right? Because many of the genetics companies were assuming that the data could be sold to other purpose, then they're setting the business model, right? Yeah. But at the same time, if we could make money from the consumers or B2B, more like a platform value, uh, we don't have to rely on those selling data, right? Is that something that users are, are concerned about? Have they complained or have, in surveys, have they said they're worried about having their data sold? At this point, they are not really care about it because many of the user interview for us does they really don't care about it. But our companies think what's going to happen in five or ten years. Right now, we are people sharing only small part of the DNA data, right? But uh, what if we have like hundred percent of the DNA data? That that story going to be totally different, right? Literally, can identify who you are, yeah. and then the data itself can know any of the disease risks that you even don't want to know, right? So, so you think in the future, people might just become a lot more concerned about it? That's something I imagine. Another perspective is even companies sell the data, I want to create a kind of system or an opportunity for people take the ownership and sell the data by themselves. How would that work? So it's more like a kind of participatory marketplace of the research. Actually, this idea is already kind of started by some company by using blockchain this year. Well, you don't, you don't need... I mean, the blockchain seems to be grafted onto every business <laughs> model these days. But uh, you don't need the blockchain to do this business model. So, I mean, the idea would be that the users could opt in to having their yeah. genetic data yeah, used yeah. and receive some Yeah, I'm very happy to hear your view on that. Too. <laughs> but anyway, so people are thinking about that too because... You know, that's kind of changing the model of, you know, the company getting the data, listening the data. So people are thinking about it, but our, what we see is that we have to provide a value to the users yeah. who are doing it, right? Yeah. Now that I think of it, is, is DNA considered medical records? Do they fall under HIPAA compliance? Yeah. They do? So our data storage of the API solution is like a HIPAA compliance. All HIPAA compliant. It's a part of the value too, right? Because company doesn't want to have the data requirement of the HIPAA, right? Right. We keep your users' DNA data in your HIPAA compliance server while you can access to the genetic trace information just you know, without accessing raw DNA data. 
Yeah, I can see why that'd be really attractive for a company that just wants to make an app yeah. that accesses this info. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Let's talk a bit about Japan in general. Sure, sure. We're here actually doing this interview at Impact Hub in, in Meguro. You, you worked here for a couple of years, kind of building up the startup ecosystem and, and building a community here. So what did you find most challenging mm. about <laughs> building a community when you were doing it here? Yeah, so when I was here, it's more like almost three or four years ago. So at that point, so we really don't have much entrepreneurs yet. Entrepreneur versus people who want to support entrepreneurs there's kind of the less entrepreneurs always. So there's more people who want to support them than there are entrepreneurs? Right, right, right. What's the motivation of people who want to support them? As, as, yeah, as a half joke, we had a vision and then we were the startup. By supporting those small entrepreneurs, we kind of wanted to create a you know, huge impact as like a collaborative community. That was the purpose of the Impact Hub. We did a, some startup program. For me, there are so many really super people that I trust in the community of you know, venture capital or accelerator. But I see that many of the people want to support startup, start entrepreneurs and startups because they want to be the part of it, while they are not really able to take that risk they want to be the... I, yeah, I think I know what you're saying. There are a lot of, especially in the last three or four years, there's been a lot of big companies who've said, we want to be, we want to support entrepreneurs and we want to be the center of an entrepreneurial community but they didn't really offer anything that the entrepreneurs <laughs> wanted no <laughs> and then they were surprised why no one came to their events right 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 they want to support it they want to be part of it but they don't want to be the entrepreneur so yeah although i mean it is so much better now than it was say 10 years ago 10 years ago if you wanted to have an event or a meetup it was almost impossible to find space mm -hmm. right right now right. it's there's so much free space available in Tokyo if you want to have a yeah, meetup yeah, yeah, or a yeah, get-together. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's really great for startups. Yeah. Of course, it makes it that much harder to build a community because you have to offer more and more exciting things to get the founder's attention. That's true. You also, you were part of the Illumina Accelerator in San Francisco, weren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that accelerator is a focus on genomics. How did you find out about it and, and why did you decide to attend? It's part of the story of how we started Awaken. Uh, so you know, Awaken started as a weekend project, right? Then as the project growing, we just realized that why don't we just you know, try to get the money and once we get the money, maybe we can create a company and this, you know, create a previous company and start this as a you know, full-time job, right? Top of the list was Illumina Accelerator because Right, Illumina is a kind of Google or Microsoft genomics. So we knew it and we just applied it. So, so did you tell your boss about it before, <laughs> before you were selected or after you were selected? Oh no, of course after selected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When we were applying, we still like a weekend project. We had a kind of idea and we had like a landing page to test, but that, that's it, nothing behind it. Yeah, it was part of the fun. Once we passed like an uh, online application, we got a, a bit kind of confused. Oh, we, oh, we, we selected. The life sciences industry is so different in Japan and the US. So, Maybe, yeah. Well, how did the accelerator help you? What did you get out of it? So we were actually joined as like a kind of 
co-working users. The, the accelerator itself, offer, you know, as, as, I say, as you said, you know, life science type accelerator, right? So it supports more like a laboratory-based company. But at the end, we are more like a software company, right? But in your case, it was mostly connections with potential customers, or what was the big value you got out of it? To us, the biggest value is the fact that we were selected for the Illumina Accelerator. And, and that gave you a lot of kind of validation and credibility back in Japan? Back in Japan, in the United States, right? Because we kind of needed to do our business in the United States because, yeah, the Japanese market is kind of five years behind, you know, uh, from the U.S. market, right? And what we wanted to do is something really even new to the U.S. market. We cannot do anything in Japan, uh, you know, unless we can we validate what we are doing is okay in the United States market, right? So we have to be there. So my, my thinking at that point was, I would say I was not really confident if we just go around there and then do something. It's just a kind of tourist type entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, there's too many of them. In right? So I kind of wanted to be, uh, if I were doing this in the United States, I need a kind of proof or a credibility. So the founding team is Japanese. Your investors are Japanese. Are you doing business and looking for customers in the United States or Japan or in both? US, in, in the US. US. Yeah. Why is that? Is just the US market more developed or? More developed and then Japanese market. Normally Japanese genetic testing company allow user to download their DNA data. So in US, there's 10 million users have DNA data versus in Japan, zero. Okay, well, zero is a tough market. Right? <laughs> and also, there is no regulation on like a cloud storage of DNA data. It's no like, you know, HIPAA compliance standard. And it's really hard for a company to... No, I, I can understand that. That makes sense. So yeah, so not just Illumina Accelerator. So we are now funded by UC Berkeley Skydeck Fund. I was trying to get those names our company to get the credibility. You know, with those two names, I'm really now confident that we, we can really talk to many of the, you know, like B2B clients or consumers with confidence. Yeah, I'm really now confident that we really can be the global team that way. Yeah, I think that level of validation is extra important in the life sciences simply because... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's... So few people can evaluate the, the core technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think we see so few life sciences startups in Japan? Less number of the researcher or less number of the researcher who has the entrepreneurship. So you think it's mostly attitude? It's not the, the laws or the structure or the investors? You think we just need more entrepreneurs to try my philosophy on startup is more like just people focus, not really institution focus. Right, you know, if there's people, you know, people would be doing it. And if people are doing it, there would be the change of the institutional things, right? It's going to take time, but I'm try, I'm, I see more like the kind of cause of the things from the people's perspective. That, that's my attitude. So after saying that, another reason, like institutional thing is in Japan, getting the fund after Series A funding for the life science is really hard because I think, as you said, there's not so many people can actually evaluate the, the value of those technology and also have the huge understanding of how venture capital financing can bridge that seeds to the after funding round, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw many people really who has, you know, really 
great knowledge of it in Bay Area, but I have never seen that kind of people in Japan. I, I think it's much harder to invest in life sciences because yeah. if, if some business, some B2B SaaS company is out there ra- trying to raise $5 million, they have customers and they have growth and yeah. they have like any MBA can look at them and say, ah, oh, okay, these guys are a safe bet. When a life sciences company is trying to raise five or $10 million, they don't really have much yet. Mm. You know, I mean, not in terms of revenues and customers anyway. Right. Right. So yeah, I guess it is much harder. Right. In that case, I'm really not sure if we should look for the solution in Japan or not, because if the researcher really wants to make their technology to you know, the company, there will be the possibility that to get funded by US investors too, right? It makes sense for them to do what you did and, and look into the U.S. markets. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Tomo, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the legal system, anything at all, to make things better for startups in Japan, what would you change? If I have that magic one, maybe make every single Japanese people can speak English just fluently. Even I say in Bay Area, I think the Japanese people are really working hard, really smart people there. People in the United States tend to make them look bigger, right? They're really good at making you, know, you look bigger, greater, right? Uh, but if all Japanese people, you know, they are not really good at it, but still they have really, you know, high skill set, you know, really, you know, working hard attitude. I, I think a lot of that isn't so much language, it's, it's culture. Americans are, are world famous for bragging a little too much and exaggerating their own abilities, yeah, both personal true. and company. Yeah, but still, I mean, you know, if, if they, you know, there is no language barrier, you know, the, the global market isn't really hard to go for yeah. Japanese people. Yeah, I've, I've had a number of people talk about the importance of fluent English. So do you see the main importance as the ability for Japanese entrepreneurs to explain themselves and explain their solutions to the rest of the world? Or do you see it more as the importance of understanding what's going on in the rest of the world? My not really issue, but my thinking on Japanese market, Japanese startup is Japanese market is kind of too big market for entrepreneurs to go global. As you said, if we have like a global mind, we can identify what's really happening outside of Japan. Right. So you think Japanese founders just get too comfortable in the Japanese market? Not really comfortable because I think they are choosing the right market because for us, you know, we we know Japanese market and we don't see any of the market opportunity. So we just had to you know, go to the United States, which is just you know, tough for us, right? But for many of the Japanese startup, so in the United States, there's kind of the validated business model, right? And in Japan, there's a huge market and then which have not applied that technology, right? So if you are the really serious entrepreneur who really serious about being successful, if I were not really starting in startup in genomics, I would be choosing simply, you know, that kind of business model 
which is solving the local issue, but the business model is validated by U.S. market. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of kind of clone business models. Right. Uh, I mean, not only just in Japan, in, in most yeah. non-English speaking markets, there's yeah. a lot of clone products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I've always thought that was interesting because that is, those can be safe businesses that are attractive M&A targets and in small markets they might even IPO, but clone startups can never go global. Right, that's so true. So Japanese market is kind of you know, too big and I would say like too comfortable to start, right? But still, like, you know, Japan is a really big market, right? Yeah. As you mentioned, I'm like, if, if everyone spoke fluent English, the language barrier would disappear. Yeah, that, that's something. And you know. suddenly, you couldn't do clone businesses anymore because everyone could compete in Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Japanese entrepreneurs would have to come up with businesses that true, could true. compete in America. True, true. So, your language is kind of barrier for us to you know, go outside, but at the same time, barrier you know, for protecting our market from the outside, right? Right, right. So it's something that's it's probably very beneficial when companies are really tiny, but difficult when it comes to the next stage and it's ready sure. for them to grow. Sure. sure. Do you think Japanese startups are becoming more global or thinking more globally? I think so. Yeah. I mean, really case by case, we are trying to create a really, you know, the, the best global startup from Japan. And there, I know many entrepreneurs, that's true. So I hope that's grow. I'm really not sure if that's going to be the good advice for many startups because you really don't have to, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can survive in Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and also from the venture capital perspective, you know, if say if there's you know great story for domestic market, you know, maybe that could be make sense, making sense, right? True, true. Excellent. Okay, Tomo, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we're back. It's interesting and a bit disappointing that this Japanese team had to go to the U.S. to receive validation and customers. You and I have talked about this before, and you know it's an ongoing frustration of mine. I mean, in this particular case, it makes more sense, because as Tomo pointed out, the U.S. has a clearer and more flexible legal framework for sharing DNA information. And there's an emerging market of thousands of people who have had their DNA tested. So yeah, it makes sense that they would go after that market. That's all good. The sticking point is on the investor side. Like so many other founders who have been on Disrupting Japan, the support and investment only came after Awakens had been vetted and validated by the Illumina Accelerator. There's no lack of innovation in Japan. There is a tremendous amount of innovation in Japan. What is most lacking here are VCs and early adopters willing to trust their own research and their own instincts and be the first one to take a chance on a new technology. Japan has one or two of those guys, but we need a lot more. But back to Awakens and the genome industry. Can we call it that? The genome industry? Yeah, we can. And we probably should. Because we're talking about the genome industry as something separate from the medical industry. We're talking about the B2C side of DNA. 
And as a consumer, I have to admit I had some reservations here. There's a lot of pseudoscience and DNA snake oil being sold. Companies will read your DNA and tell you about your intelligence, your likelihood to catch specific diseases, your personality traits, and so much more. But these mass-market DNA companies have the scientific validity of psychic readings or astrology. But hey, psychic readings and astrology are big business. And what Awakens has done, quite cleverly in my opinion, is position themselves as the platform for any genome-related applications that may arise in the future. If a company wants to launch a service promising to use your DNA to find your perfect love match, and it seems that there are already a lot of companies doing this, Awakens could not only provide them with the software platform, but the consulting to tell these companies which DNA sequences could possibly plausibly, maybe, kind of, sort of be useful in determining the compatibility of a couple. On the other extreme, if Awakens continues its commitment to linking up the latest research with the DNA sequences in its database, they could fill a real medical research niche as well. And there are thousands of potential applications between those two extremes of rigorous medical research, and new-age woo-woo dating sites. And if Awakens plays their cards right, they could end up being the genetic data back-end of all of them. If you want to talk about genetics in research or dating, Tomo and I would love to hear from you. So come by Disrupting Japan slash show 114 and tell us about it. And when you come by the site, you'll see the links and resources that Tomo and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, I've got some great news for Japanese startups looking for staff or foreigners in Japan who want to work with startups. Disrupting Japan is teaming up with 500 startups to help connect startups and people who are interested in working for them. On March 6th, we're holding an event where those two groups can connect and where you can hear an in-depth discussion with startup CEOs who have successfully grown their companies using mixed teams. And yes, there will be beer. Details are on the Disrupting Japan and the 500 Startups Japan sites, so I hope to see you there. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero. And thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.